So if you were here, cast your mind to a couple of weeks ago when we started at the beginning of the book of Esther and looked at Susa and the empire that was filled with the rampant materialism and this obsession with appearance and all the anxieties that go with that. We looked at how in the eyes of God, I'm going to get muddled up with this thing, in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the author of this book, all of that is totally laughable and utterly trivial. A king who tried to set himself up as the king of kings, and yet just a few months after what happens in this book, would he, he would be dethroned and utterly defeated. We looked at the situation for women, and we talked about how the very many sufferings of women are recorded in the Bible in a really, truly realistic way. And how Esther is a terrible reminder of that as she experienced being taken to a harem and then used and abused for the pleasure of one man. And we saw that even that kind of darkness, the Bible is concerned with the real world that you and I experience. It's not kind of some kind of fantasy world of unicorns and rainbows but the raw, very real, stark reality of a world in which we live. And what that truly means is that when we suffer, when we go through dark times, we can remember the faithfulness of God. We can lean on a God who in the past has worked in equally dark times and places. Last week, we looked together at how we resist an enemy, how we resist the enemy of pride, and more specifically, how we resist the enemy that works against us, that bringing fear, intimidation, and threat. And how in the Bible, we are given tools to resist that enemy. And so today, as we come to the close of this book, we're going to think of the theme of God at being at work and how we fit into that. So let's just do a quick catch-up as to where we left it last week and where we're picking up today. So if you remember, Mordecai has overheard a plot about the assassination of King Xerxes. And he warns the king about it all, and the two guilty parties are arrested. You'll remember that Haman has plotted to have all the Jews killed and all their property confiscated. And the king has agreed to that in an edict. And last week, we looked at chapter 4, verse 14, where Mordecai warns Esther that she's put in this position of power as queen, and, even, and that even if she doesn't speak up, deliverance will come. She could actually have been left out of this story. She has a choice at that moment. Is she going to speak up or not? And Mordecai challenges her with that phrase, were you not put here for such a time as this? And today, we're going to look at her incredible response in chapter 4, verse 15 to 17. Do look at it in the Bibles. Chapter 4, verse 15 to 17. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. 
When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. The first thing I want us to consider this morning is this the, uh, is, it, is the idea that God is at work in his world. And we are asked for our response. And we see Esther's response to the challenge that she faces. In chapter 5, she actually dares to enter the king's palace and invites the king and Haman to the first banquet. And then during the first banquet, she invites them for the second time. And then we come to chapter 6. And we're going to read the first three verses. Chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of his chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Hardword and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, said the king. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. So before the second banquet, the king suffers from a sleepless night and he orders that the chronicles, the book of his reign, to be read to him so he could fall asleep must have been completely riveting. And it just so happens that they open the book, just so happens that they open the book at the bit when Mordecai has thwarted the plot of the assassination. God is at work. Remember that in the book of Esther, that God's name is not mentioned once. However, God is at work. He's even working through the king's insomnia. He's working through the exact page in a book that the attendant happens to open and read. And God is working through Esther. Now, we don't know much about Esther's feelings or her motives, but we do know her situation. We know she's a young Jewish girl who has been basically trafficked and unwillingly forced into a pagan king's harem. And we might ask ourselves the question, what real choice could anyone in her situation really have? What real choice? The text anticipates that tension by showing us that even in that situation, she still has the capacity to make a choice. But she goes ahead and sets up these two banquets and goes about confronting the world's most powerful man. But understandably, Esther is afraid. She is afraid. And the text is pretty clear on that. She says, fast for me, which means pray for me. I've got no idea what's going to happen to me. In this culture at that time, going before the king without an invitation was a capital offense. It was a death wish, forgivable only at the king's whim. And we already know enough about the king and his approach to women. Back in chapter 1, things for Queen Vashti didn't go very well. 
And we know from this text that Esther has not had contact with him for months. And she hasn't slept with him for months. And as it is pretty unlikely for a begging king like this to be sleeping alone, Esther is on dicey ground. What's interesting in this text is that she doesn't have a prophetic vision or a biblical promise to name and claim for her safety. Without knowing the end of the story, without any idea of how things are going to work out, Esther has to make a decision. Am I going to identify with God's people or not? Am I going to stand up and speak or not? And often this is the kind of situation we are going to find ourselves in. We are not going to know in advance the significance of our circumstances or the decisions we make. We're not even necessarily going to know how God is going to work. But what we do know, that our actions and decisions in that moment, in the moment, are incredibly significant. There are two guys who are good friends. Justice, his name is a Christian leader in northern Nigeria, and his friend Hassan, was, who was the CNN journalist who broke the story of the Boko Haram kidnapping of the girls. And um, Hassan, one day, he was working up in northern Nigeria too, and, they, and he heard the story of a young girl from a Christian family in a, from a Christian community who had been taken. She'd been taken and she'd been taken against her will. She'd been taken from her family and forcibly married. And Hassan is an incredible guy and he fully loves the Lord and he got intelligence about where she was being held and he showed up and he was able to rescue her. They had to run to the police station where it got surrounded by the mob. And he was wanting to take, they were, the mob was wanting to take this girl back. But luckily they managed to escape through the back of the police station and were able to get on a bus towards help. And on the bus, Hassan rang his friend Justice and said, Hassan, um, Justice, I need your help. There's this young woman, and she's in this situation. Can we find a place for her, a, a place in a refugee camp or an organization where she can be safe? Hassan had to get off the bus, and this young lady had to carry on, and Justice agreed to meet this young woman off the bus. But as she got off the bus, Justice described how he collapsed inside. What he had been told that she was a young woman 
but she was actually a young girl, aged around 14, but looked about 12. Justice realized that he couldn't put her in the place he had planned, and she wouldn't be, she wouldn't be safe. So what he decided to do is he brought her home to his wife. He rang his wife and he said, Darling, we have a daughter. And Winifred, who was his wife, and she's such a woman of God, that she opened her arms and opened her home to this young girl. This young woman could no longer return to her family. And her own parents agreed that this is the right plan for her going forward. To be safe. To thrive. To flourish. Neither Hassan or Justice had a dream or a miracle telling them what to do. But a year later, this girl is doing well. She's receiving an education. She's getting help for the trauma that she's been through. In the same way, Esther has no miracle to guide her. But she is faithful to God. Listen to the defiance and the confidence of her answer. If I perish, I perish. In that moment, Esther goes from being a woman trafficked against her will married to a pagan king, to a woman standing in the confidence of God. Mordecai calls her into action. His challenge to her, when he asks her the question, have you not found yourself in this place for such a time as this, has put purpose into her position and even into her suffering. And whether you know it or not, all of us are influences here. We all have different positions of influence in our culture, whether we're lawyers or teachers, writers or mothers, or company directors or artists, or fathers or bankers, careers, students, doctors, grandparents, lecturers, physios, and if I haven't got your career in this, do add it in in your head, nurses and whatever it is that God has called us all to do. Each one of us need to navigate the question of identity and the questions of challenge around who God is and how his people fit into this world. But seeing Esther as an example, it is a powerful encouragement. I believe that God's word for us today, God's word for us today is to take that stand, to take courage and to have confidence to take that stand, to take courage and to have confidence. And if we can't, if we can't, if S's bravery overwhelms us, then look to Jesus, the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate mediator who risks everything to save us. Esther is a prophetic picture of Christ. And going before the King Jesus Christ doesn't say, if I perish, I perish. Jesus says, when I perish, I perish. He is our security. Jesus is our value. He is our worth. When we have him, we can risk it all. We can risk our positions and our connections, our careers and our riches, because in him we have found freedom. And as the gospel becomes increasingly precious to us, 
we begin to see that we have been put here for such a time as this. Perhaps God will put into our hearts to stand, to speak for him, to be part of his redemption plan for his world. And we too, with Esther and Jesus, may find ourselves feeling, may even find ourselves saying, if I perish, I perish. And some of us may wonder if God really means us. We know he can use the people around us. We know he can use the people to our left. I'm making sure I've got the left, right, and the right. But we're not sure he'd want to use us. But we know that he knows some of our ambiguous past. We know that he knows about our mixed motives. And we look at Esther call for such a time as this and we see Esther as this heroic figure who's got it all together but as we look at the text we can see that is not the case it is for people like us for people who've made mistakes for people who've been on the receiving end of violations from perpetrators for people who've been trafficked or worked in the sex industry all kinds of people can be used by God to save his people all kinds of people We cannot limit God. We cannot contain him. God can use us. God is at work. And our response is utterly critical. Will we be courageous? Will we speak up? Will we stand up? Will we risk our position? Will we risk what we own? Will we risk how people regard us for the sake of his kingdom? God is working. And at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that Haman was filled with pride and wanted to kill Mordecai. The king has insomnia and has the records of his reign read to him, and he gets to thinking about Mordecai. And when Haman walks into the king's presence, he is asked, Esther 6, verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman immediately presumes that the king is talking about him. Once again, his pride gets the better of him. Now Haman, Esther 6, verse 7 to 9. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe to the king has worn, has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most no- noble princes and let, their, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets. Proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. It's the king's robes that identify him as king, and this is really significant. Remember the importance of outward appearance, the appearance that you project. It's like saying the person who's going to wear these robes is effectively the king. Putting your robe on another person is an unbelievably expression of love, esteem, value, and respect. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see that Jonathan 
gives his royal robes to David. And in so doing, he is saying that you, David, should be king. This is what Haman is asking for. And Haman is thinking, if only people could see me in these robes, they might see me as beloved. They might see me as someone great. They might know my worth and value. And as we read this, it's fascinating to see that this is something we all desperately want as human beings. We want to experience the praise of someone we regard as special. We want to receive the love of someone of a person that we admire. There's this longing in the human heart to be loved by another. What else should be done? What else should happen to the man the king delights in? Haman says, put him on the king's horse. This is a visual image of the king as a conquering hero returning from a military victory. Now we know from reading Esther that this king is actually going to come back utterly defeated. But we see this desire to be seen as successful, to be seen as powerful. And then Haman says, let the greatest noble take position of a servant leading the horse. This is greatness in comparison to someone else. It's not enough for me to feel great and puffed up. I need to be better than someone else, that someone else needs to be the very best person in the kingdom. Competitive, comparative greatness. And he thinks all of that will surely show how much the king delights in him. So what happens here? God is working. And his way of working is to reverse the position of his enemies. And to Haman's utter shock, you can imagine it, the king says in verse 10, Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. And Haman takes the role of Mordecai's servant, leading Mordecai on the king's horse. Haman comes in thinking to himself, I've made this huge spike on which Mordecai is going to be publicly impaled. Not, he wasn't just content to kill Mordecai and all his people. Haman was going to absolutely shame him. And then comes this final reversal, this final twist. Haman ends up impaled on the very pole he had built for Mordecai. In the Bible it says, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. And as we read this text, the question comes to us, can we trust God today? Can we trust that the towering enemies of his kingdom and the forces that oppose us and oppose God's truth will ultimately be humbled? Can we trust that he can and will reverse situations? George Whitfield, who was the greatest preacher, tells a story of a man who came to hear him speak. And Whitfield famously never preached the gospel without tears pouring down his cheeks, tears of love for those he was preaching for, tears of love and compassion. One of the greatest evangelists, evangelists this nation has ever seen and George Whitfield, in his memoirs, tells a story of this man. 
who comes up to him after the sermon and he said, now brace yourselves, I came here to break your head with these stones, but your sermon and your tears broke my heart. Let me too become a follower of Jesus. Haman longed to be the one the king would delight to honor. He sought the love of someone glorious. Actually, what he was seeking wasn't wrong. On one level, he wasn't asking for the wrong thing. The love of someone more praiseworthy, more glorious than any of us. Haman just turned towards the wrong king. The king with the ultimate glory, our God, the God who was saved, the God who was stripped of his glory, who was stripped of his father's love, so as to reverse places with us. He is the glorious one who our hearts are made to long for. And even when we were his enemies, Jesus Jesus did this for us. He is the king who reverses places with us. This text is, it is a prophetic picture of what is going to happen in the New Testament. This kind of reversal. Jesus reverses everything. At the cross, he reverses everything. And instead, he offers us acceptance, forgiveness, new life, and the love of someone glorious. God is working. What is our response going to be? God is reversing enemies. And God is working in overcoming evil. Esther is a testimony of the unthwartable promises of God. We know as we read the Bible that Satan makes all these attempts to destroy God's salvation. Haman's plot to kill all the Jews happens again and again and again. Jesus himself was born into the same situation. The Gospels tells us that all the newborns were ordered to be killed by Herod in an attempt to stop out the Jews. And Satan is right behind the plot of Haman's. But God is one step ahead. Just as Haman's plan to impel Mordecai on a giant spike backfired, so the enemy's attempt to destroy Jesus backfired too, to destroy the work of God again and again, is comprehensively defeated, totally and utterly defeated. In chapter 7, verse 9, in her second feast, Esther tells the king that Haman is the man responsible for trying to exterminate her people. And the king becomes enraged. And the tool that he and Haman intended for the Esther for this domination of the Jews, becomes the means for Haman's own execution. God ultimately defeats evil, and sometimes we lose sight of that. God is working to defeat evil, and through the book of Esther, we are invited to be part of that battle. And finally, God is at work. But do we remember It became the custom of the Jewish people to celebrate the total turnaround that happened. Haman was impelled on the spike meant for Mordecai and its gruesome end to the book of Esther. The king himself issues another edict saying that the Jewish people are not to be killed, that they are allowed to defend themselves. If anyone comes to attack them, they can defend themselves. They are utterly liberated. They have this amazing celebration, chapter 9, verse 21-22 
speaks of their sorrow turning into joy and how they get this amazing relief from their enemies to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Verse 27 to 28, we read that the Jews made it custom to every year to remember that deliverance in the feast called the Feast of Purim. They celebrated there and then and made it their custom every year to celebrate like that in order to remember. Remembering is important in the story of Esther for lots of reasons. But this is one of them, to help us remember what does remembering God and the way that God has worked worked in the past do. Remembering encourages us. It reminds us in the most challenging times that God is faithful, that breakthroughs do happen, that he has done these things in the past and he will be with us great, will be with us again today. In the Christian life, all of us need those experiences of breakthrough. And then we need to practice the discipline of remembering them, be inspired by how God has worked in this past God is at work even when we cannot see it. We may find ourselves right now in the midst of a storm. We may be in the midst of an accumulation of pressure that seems like it's it's going to overwhelm us and sink us. We may be living hour to hour, praying that God is going to roll back those clouds which seems to be pressing in. Hear the word of the Lord today. That God is faithful, that God is present, even in the most trying of circumstances. I need to remember that today, when I can't always see him at work, when things feel overwhelming, that he is true, that he is real and he is at work. So we need to remember, remembering is important. But remembering is a discipline. And that discipline leads us into a deeper and greater breakthrough in the Christian life. And if we don't exercise that discipline, we so very quickly forget the goodness of God. In this text, remembering is physical. They actually feast which helps us to remember in a kind of embodied way. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we remember. So learn, let us learn from Esther. Learn from the Feast of Purim, the discipline of remembering. For them, it was all tied up in the feasting and rejoicing because there was tremendous victory. So in conclusion... God is at work in his world. Our response matters. Esther's courageous response, if I perish, I will perish, really, really mattered. That was the turning point of all sorts of breakthrough and situation. God reverses enemies. We serve a God who is powerful, who is mighty, 
who can turn situations completely on their head. God calls us to stand in the battle and to resist evil. Why don't you stand?